I want for people to realize that if you're doing the thing that God is asking you to do, even if it shifts directions and even if it looks different from when you thought, just because you don't end up on the other side of a road that you started out pursuing doesn't mean that you're a failure. That's Logan Wolfram. Her direction has definitely changed and looks different. Welcome to Episode 9 of Season 2 of the Hope Writer Podcast. This episode, Don't Let Your Voice Get Lost, with Logan Wolfram. For four years, Logan was chief steward and curator, as she called it, of the Illum Conference for teaching and encouraging bloggers and writers. Maybe you heard of it. Maybe you attended. Then she stopped, and the conference ended. Why? What's it like to be busy and successful at doing good things that are some people's dreams, but that come with a cost? That's this episode. Plus, you'll see an example of the -the behind-the-scenes reality of an event where the one running the event doesn't always get paid. You'll also get valuable insight on working with a publisher, find out why a two-book deal might not be a great idea, and sometimes a friend says something so meaningful that it makes you cry. Don't miss the last 10 minutes and why Logan is still crying. The Hope Writer Podcast is brought to you by Hope Writers, an online membership community for writers of hope. If you want your writing to give others hope, we want to give you hope. And you can start getting that hope right now. Go inside Hope Writers for a week for $1. Just visit HopeWriters.com slash trial. Your hosts on the podcast and at Hope Writers are sisters and authors Emily P. Freeman and Michael and Smith, marketing and tech guru Brian Dixon, who also writes books, and I'm Gary Moreland, Michael and Emily's dad. My first book's going to be in bookstores next summer. In the previous episode of the Hope Writer podcast, you heard writing encouragement from Ann Voskamp. Wouldn't you love to sit down with Anne and ask her about the challenges of writing and how she handles them? Well, we did. That's episode eight of season two, the previous episode. This episode, let's say you become friends with someone, you give them advice on doing something better, and they ask you to help, and the next thing you know, they give you the whole show. Well, that's how it happened for Logan Wolfram. So there was this conference called Illum. My friend Sarah May started it um, as a Christian women's blogging and social media conference. And I went in the second year of the conference. I'd started a blog because I had a one-year-old and a four-year-old. And it just seemed like a good thing to do, to write about the things that I was interested in when I was stuck in my house. And so I went the first year because I didn't really technologically know what I was doing. And I still don't, which is funny. But I went the first year because I thought, well, if I'm spending all this time on this blog, then I should learn about it. And... um, I got to be friends with Sarah May through just all of these other bizarre scenarios. And um, I went that first year. They served some really disgusting food, and there were no nice decorations except for when Emily's book, Grace for the Good Girl, came out. What's that got to do with it? You wanted to go to learn about blogging. I did, but because (laughs) I love hospitality, I love inviting people in, I love creating an environment where people aren't distracted by the things that could otherwise set the tone for something. And so I would rather... That's a good way to put it. Yeah. I would rather people um, be eating delicious food and feeling loved on and excited about that so that they're not distracted by it. But instead, people are standing around talking about how gross the food was in a session where they could have been learning something. If Sarah May listened to this, would she be insulted? No, or did she you totally t- knows. Okay. They're dear friends. <laughs> okay, We're good. dear friends. She knows that that year there was a gross mound of beef and no green vegetables, okay. and it was not good. So what'd you do about it? So she asked me if I would help do that for the next year, and I said, sure. So the next year, it was uh, 2000. 
2012, I was in charge. I kind of ended up being the event planner. I was in charge of all the food and the decorations and the stage decor and all of that. How'd you feel about that when she asked you, hey, so why don't you do that then? Great, because I knew I could. Was was it exciting to you? Yeah. Was oh it, my gosh, uh... yes. I, I loved it. And I and I the funny thing was I'd never been to any other conference except for that one. And at the time it was called Relevant. And I just thought, well, I know how to throw a party. I know how to make things look pretty. And um, and so I was having all sorts of wonderful times, having people collect cans and putting vintage-looking labels on them. And I just had a wonderful time doing it. And people that year, were they felt, I think, so welcomed because things felt prepared for them. And so I really loved that. And I ended up accidentally emceeing the conference because I handed her, I, I knew everything that was going on, like when the men's bathroom would become a women's during certain times and um, what needed to happen at this hour with the hotel. And and so I handed her this list of announcements and I said, hey, you need to make these. And she said, please don't make me do that. Those are the boring announcements. Will you please do it? And I said, I've never done this before, but fine. So I did But the you like to talk, so. I do. It worked It wasn't good. a problem. <laughs> it was fine. It was really fine. And I'm not afraid of people. I'm a total extrovert. And so it didn't stress me to Being stand. on a stage. No, it didn't. That, 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 a lot of that's, that can be very stressful for a lot of people. Yeah, it didn't bother me. And all I was doing was telling them which bathroom to go to at which hour. And so it just didn't seem all that important. And apparently... I'll I bet was, you put a lot of personality in it, though, didn't you? Apparently, I was funny. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't really realize that I was funny until then I came off and I said, I think I ruined the announcements. Oh. And, and Sarah May said, no, they were the funniest announcements ever. Please do them the rest of the time. So then I ended up kind of accidentally emceeing. You were there. Yep. Yeah. What did you think, Michael? Did you have the same observations? Yeah. Uh, Logan She's is one pausing. of the most <laughs> hospitable person. I mean, she has a background in interior okay. design. She, that's important to her. Is that like her zone of genius? That yeah, <laughs> it is one of Logan's zones of genii. Genii. <laughs> I don't think you realize. It's, it's, it's genii. Genii. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I dream. I don't genii. think we should be allowed to say it if we don't. Know. <laughs> um, and yeah, definitely added a lot of personality because she's Logan. I mean, you can just. Were you there her. that year when she? Uh, it was her first year of. Uh, you I was there the wouldn't. meat year. And then the next year, yes. Yeah. I wasn't there the very first year, okay. so I missed the first I wasn't one. there the very first year of Relevant either. Okay. But okay. the yeah. year that I met you was 2011. That was the first time that I ever went. And you saw Need, and you're like, here, I can do that. Yeah, and remember it snowed that very first year, though, and I somehow I ended up getting all of our plane tickets fixed because we were trapped the year of the Frankenstorm. Right. It wasn't like Sarah May saw Logan sitting in a corner and was like, hey, my name's Sarah. Can you help us? She started doing stuff to help before even anyone knew who she was or she needed yeah. to just okay. to be a friend. This is interesting because this ended up being a huge part of your life. Huge. Mm-hmm. For years. Years. Uh, and putting on an event is going to dominate. It's not just all the, the two months before the event. No. It goes on all year. And so I say this because this was not a goal that you had. This was not on your plan. This was no. not something you were working on to it. No. go for. No. This was this was an opportunity uh, that came up that you had a choice of how to look at it. Right. Whether you would take the next step, take the accept the invitation, not knowing where it can end up going. And didn't I remember in the airport, Caroline and I were like, "Where's Logan on the way home?" Because we were supposed to be on the same flights. You yeah. stayed longer. I ended up staying longer um, that day 
that we we ended up getting all the flights home. I couldn't actually. I don't think I could get on the same flight. Flight as you. It snowed, so it was it weird. Snowed, this so is it was the weird. first year you had just met Sarah May, right? I had just met Sarah May. Now I had led a group on her study, a uh, thirty-one days to clean, which is now an actual book. It was a ebook at the time, which I didn't know was a pamphlet, and I signed up to do like a fourteen-week study with my church because I thought I should clean my house, and this seems like a good thing. So I had gotten to know her because I had led this study. I reached out to her after I had done it and said, "Listen." I just feel like you wrote this thing. You should know that these women were changed by it. And I never expected to hear back from her. And I did. I heard back from her, and we became fast friends. So the year that it snowed, that we got stuck there, that was the first year I'd gone to a loom, and everything was not pretty, and there was the gross mounds of beef. That year, <laughs> she invited me. Sounds good to some of us. Um, it was. It really wasn't good, Gary. It was really bad. The non-attenders. Of <laughs> it was so Zoom. gross. Ask anyone. People remember the gross mounds. Um, and so that year, when our flights got delayed, she invited me to come back to her house to hang out. And so I remember she said, can you help me redecorate some stuff in my house? And so we had $400 in four hours, and we totally revamped her den as much as we possibly could in that short period of time. Wow. And it was just really fun. And so she said, I just am not good at these things. I didn't even look at the menus before they put them. I just gave them my budget. Would you help me with this next year? And I said, sure. And so then that's how I came to do that. So at the end of 2012, which was the year that I was in charge of the decorations and that I accidentally emceed the conference, Sarah May felt like that the Lord told her that she was not supposed to be doing it anymore. And we had been praying together even for that entire year that the Lord would bring someone about to take on the conference. And I remember we were talking about all these different people and different options, and and never once did it occur to me that I would do it, never once. And so after the conference, a couple weeks later, she said, I know who's supposed to do it. And I said, who? And she said, you. And I was like, well, I'm going to have to pray about that. And so Jeremy and I prayed about it. And and I took took it over. She gave it to me, literally gave me the conference. I was supposed to pay her one dollar for it because you have to, you know, pay something in order to transfer sure. a business. It ha- yeah, it has a uh, it has legal things that go right, along with it. Legal things, and we actually put an extra zero, so I paid her ten dollars for the conference. And so basically, <laughs> she gave me the conference, and I became as what both of us felt like the steward and the curator of this space. And so, um, so I spent the next several years doing it and she really backed out of it i remember talking on the phone with our friends from dayspring one time and within the first month or so after i took over the conference and they said logan do you know what you're doing and i remember standing outside my son's preschool and it was windy and cold and i was crying and i was like i don't know who's saying anything important i don't know anything about this but i feel like it's probably going to be okay and so was it okay yeah it was okay. And the conference got, um, I mean, not that growth defines necessarily the, the size of something defines the success of it, but the conference got bigger every year and we brought in more money every year, which still, by the way, is not enough to pay salaries for, for the people that it mm. needs to pay. It's not a profitable thing if there's anyone wanting to run a conference. That's, uh, like, that's, good to yeah, yeah, that is interesting mm-hmm. because... 
because a lot of times we can think of some idea and we think if it's a big idea and lots of people do it, that there's automatically some kind of income or. Yeah, I didn't take a salary for three years. So, yeah. So you were not getting rich off of a loom. I know. You were getting poor off of a loom. Yes, I was getting like. That's not unusual for an event. But people don't think that. They just think like, oh, this is a big thing and people are paying all this money. But what no one realized, I mean, the amount of ticket price that people would pay for a loom barely covered their food. And that's not to bring in speakers and to pay hotel rooms for people and audiovisual. And I mean, there are so many different components that when people say, I want to have a conference, can you mentor me on that? I'm like, no, I don't want to spend the next year doing this. Like, <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, it is a major thing. And the learning curve for me was huge. And I'm a doer, so I figure stuff out. Um, but it was really stressful. And, you know, if people say, well, why don't you make it a nonprofit? Do you have any idea how stressful that is? You have to, there's all these other components of that. And I just couldn't even handle that. But it was a, it was on my family's personal finances, like that we had to figure all of this out. Um, the last year of Loom, I personally had to pay for childcare for my kids because you cannot run a conference and write a book and do all of these things at the same time. You were writing a book at the same time, right? Yeah, writing a book at the same time. And we moved and I was homeschooling. I mean, you got to be realistic. This is These things do not make a recipe for something delightful. But you didn't do it. <laughs> When you went in, though, you don't know any of those things. No, you when don't. She, when someone tells you, I know who should do this, and I've prayed about it, and the Lord told me it should be you, I mean, did you see, like, unicorns and, uh, no. and uh, stars shining? And, <laughs> no, oh, nor did I find myself jumping up and down like, oh, yay, what I've always dreamed of. Like, yeah. it wasn't like that at all. I really, truly prayed about it and felt like, Lord... Is this something that you want me to do? I have no idea how to do this. So then as the challenges came in and you saw the reality of all the details that were on your shoulders, in a sense, yeah. how did that feel as those got revealed to you over a year, two years, three years? Well, there were some things about it that I was way better at than Sarah May was. And there were some things about it that I was way worse at. Um I mean, I'm huge to say, if you're not good at something, that's okay. Find someone who is and bring them along. So over the few years, I developed a team. By the time that we, last year's Loom, we had 10 people on our team. And so... Volunteers? Uh, uh, volunteers and, yeah. Some of them got paid more than I did because I didn't get paid anything. So yeah, some of them we paid. Some of them were volunteers. Um, we at least paid for the ones who were uber volunteers to come and covered the cost of them being there. But yeah, I mean, people just gave time to it. And then there were some we did pay. But I, I, it wasn't like I thought, oh, yes, what I've always been waiting for to run a conference. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. I was a social chair for my sorority in college. And I've always liked throwing parties. And I thought, this is really just like throwing a really large party. And the components are the same. Like, on some level, the components are the same, that people are coming for a reason. You meet the needs of the reasons that they're coming. You create an environment that doesn't get in the way of them to experience the things that they've come for. So that's kind of how I approached it. So what did you learn from all that? Um, If the same kind of thing happened again, same kind of opportunity, maybe in a different way, though. Well, I'd charge people a whole lot more to come. (laughs) I'm not working for free anymore, I'll tell you that, because there's so many costs. There are so many costs of things. And, you know, I think, too, people look at something and they'll say, this is such a good thing that you're doing. But there are costs involved and you have to figure out what are the costs to you and what are the things that you need to make back. 
So you didn't do that at the beginning? No. You didn't know that then or didn't think of it then? or I think I didn't know what all of those things were. Yeah, I mean, okay. You, you just don't know a lot of things until you get into something. You, I did a lot of things that people told me in conferencing were like a bad idea. I would talk to speakers and say, I feel like maybe this is kind of what I see in you or this is the direction that I think we need to go. But I didn't make speakers ever turn in like a full outline of everything that they were doing. Nothing's as simple as people ever think that it is. And, and just because something's good doesn't mean that it's always good for you. And, and so I think at some point we had to come to that for me and my family with the loom and even for our team, it takes, like you were saying, it takes over a year to put on something like that. What was the process coming to a conclusion that you weren't going to do it anymore or you weren't going to do it at least for a while? Uh, well, I actually came to that decision the year before we did it last year. So in 2015 we did it and I had felt like we weren't supposed to do it then. And I kind of got talked into doing it again. The space was changing. I mean, the finances of it were always hard, that it took a lot of time for me. I mean, I have little kids. You know, the proof is not in the pudding of if I've done this well or not. My kids are still little. Ask me in 15 years if they're following Jesus or not, and I'll tell you if I screwed up or not. Mm. <laughs> like, I, I think that is a huge thing, too, that I'm constantly wanting to ask myself is, just because I think that I can manage logistics doesn't mean that I'm managing the things that I'm responsible for right now. And I, and I think that that is kind of a lie that our culture tells us. If you can figure out the logistics, then that means that you can do this. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And so there are things that I've seen in the last six months that that have been in the last year of not doing a loom that I think have been very healthy for my family that I think I would not have had the margin to go back and make sure we're going to be okay. Like what? What were those things? Uh, like my son was struggling with some... I mean, he was, I'm not going to obviously get into the details of it, but he was just struggling with some different things. And I think part of it was because I was distracted. And and I don't ever want to be distracted by ministry to the point where the people I'm supposed to be ministering to in my daily life are, are feeling like they're just getting scraps. It's so interesting to hear. And just to know, because I've known you for a few years now, when you started to think about maybe not doing that and, and watching that process, I wish, I think we all need people in our lives um, who we see what they're doing. They're doing something really great and valuable. Um, and then we see them go through the process of maybe changing that or saying no or stopping or slowing down. I know for me, that was really powerful because lots of people that I know and lots of people in our circles, you were doing the dream. You yeah. had a conference. You got a two-book deal. So you never stop. What else can you do? I think was is kind of like the natural, what's the next thing, Logan? Um, and so to see you say, okay, I need to think about this. And I think I'm just going to stop it. I'm not going to sell it. I'm not going to try to, you know, turn it into a membership site. Not that there's anything wrong with that. And you still could and you still might. Um, but just having the courage to say, and we're done right now. Yeah. I just... I mean, I guess you just have to ask yourself the question, why am I doing this and who am I doing it for? And I mean, y'all, I, I still want to be married like to my husband in 15 years. And I want my kids to want to come home when they're old and have children of their own. And if I don't cultivate that environment now, then it's not like I'm going to get to redo that later. And so I was talking to a friend and she said, 
Imagine what your life is when you're 85 and what you want it to look like then. Uh, you need to almost backtrack to now to figure out what are the things that I need to be doing now. If I want to be sitting on a porch rocking, reading to one of my grandchildren, then I can't think that if I don't do that with my children now, that I'm all of a sudden going to just be, you know, Mimi that people want to come and do that with. Like that there are certain ways that we cultivate our lives now that are what set us up for the life that we want to live. And I don't ever want to be so busy. And what had happened, I'd gotten so busy uh, doing all of these good things that uh, my friends weren't asking me to hang out to do things because they knew that I was too overwhelmed. Um, I mean, I've spent the last year trying to reconcile messy things that happened in my friendships. And I have really great, wonderful, understanding friends who love me and who love God. Um, but when you start saying no to things enough because you're overwhelmed, or if you start getting short with people and not caring about the other things that are going on in their lives, you cannot live some life at the expense of your life. Like it just, and I think that that's what can happen is you get these dreams or these ideas. And I wasn't even trying to like fulfill a dream. I was just operating in the things that I felt like God was calling me to do. And there are costs to it. And so you need to realize that there are costs to these things and weigh the costs. And if it's not a cost that you're willing to pay, then you have to figure out what you need to do to not pay that. And so for me, it was like stopping some things. And I'm just as happy sewing pillows lately as I am, as I was like <laughs> running a conference. Like there's just different levels of things I think mm-hmm. that we can do. If I write two books and I never write a book again, maybe that would be sad, but maybe it would be fine too. Right. So you have written one book. You have a two book deal. Is that right? Right. Would you ever do another two book deal again? Uh. You, you know what I think about or this under, already. <laughs> are there any circumstances um, under which you would do a two-book deal? Uh, yes. <laughs> I think that there can be circumstances in which I would do a two-book deal again. As a first-time author, I would I would never advise doing a two-book deal. Why? Um, because, for one, I think unless you have two ideas already, then I think that you're – and I did not. I only had one idea, and I'm still working out the second one. But I only had the one idea. And so to go in and to commit yourself under a timeline to coming up with some whole other idea, I think is very unwise. Um, Kind of squashes the creative process. It squashes creative process. And I also think you haven't had a chance to know what you're getting into. So you can't even measure the cost of what it'll take. But it takes over two years or about two years by the time that you're writing a book, doing it, publishing it. Um, I mean, all the things that are involved. And so can you look at your life and make a determination of what's going to be going on four years from now and what you're willing to pay for it? I I just don't think you can. I think you need to walk all the way through the process. And I mean, as you know, the publishing industry is forever changing. And so, I mean, you could have one team at one place that you sign with and then they could all leave and go somewhere else. And right. then you could have an entirely different team. Did that happen to you? Indeed, it did. <laughs> she speaks from experience. I speak from experience. And it there's great a people. Lot. I've heard a lot of Be- people say that. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, that we think of uh, organizations as doing things a certain way, but usually it's the people in organizations do mm-hmm. things different right. way. It's not objective. It's very subjective depending upon the people you're talking to. Yeah, and I think different publishers have different goals for what they're wanting to be doing. And and when you see a team change, then the goals can change as well. And so And you're in, you were already in the middle of it. 
I was already in the middle of it. If your publisher's goals changed in the middle of you writing something, (laughs) I've had that happen in jobs and where your boss hired you and then your boss was gone and the people after him don't necessarily want exactly what you were hired to do. And it doesn't, it's not like necessarily a bad thing, uh, but it can be a really hard thing because you're having to readjust expectations that you had and you're getting to know new people and... There's just a lot of different pieces of the pie. And until you've walked all the way through, you just don't even know what those pieces are. You can't even begin to fathom what it really looks like to, to go through uh, different editors. And, and there's different editors that do different things. There's copy editors and typesetters and there's content editors. And you, you just don't know what it is to work with all those different people. You don't know the amount of time it's going to take you. You don't know if you will have written something that they call like a clean manuscript or if it's a messy one and you have to go back and do (laughs) massive rewrites. Like you just don't know what it's going to require of you. And so to commit yourself for a longer period of time, I just, I personally would not recommend it. And I apologize to all of the publishing houses that will not be pleased with me for saying that. (laughs) Well, you said it depended too. Yeah. It depends. But if you have t- if you have two ideas going in yeah. and your publisher is saying, I love these two ideas, then I feel like if you've already got that content in you, then there's no reason why you can't. But if you don't, I just think it's something that you should really weigh. Or if you can get someone to have a very open-ended sort of contract, which no publisher in their right mind is really going to do that. <laughs> Write your second book whenever you want. Like, you know, they're not going to do that either. So you have to have reasonable expectations of yourself and of them. And I mean, I can't just like make something up and expect to like okay. write all of this book on nothing yeah, when it, I have nothing to say. It comes, it <laughs> yeah. comes from somewhere. Yeah, it comes from somewhere. And the way that I write, it's, I mean, it's something that is welling up and it's something that needs to come out and there needs to be a message. And if you're tired and exhausted and worn out, then I think probably you should refill before you think you're going to have anything else great to say. There I mean, you I'm go. just you're a hope writer tossing it out there. <laughs> you can't write from an empty well. So I've been making pillows and quilts and sewing and making earrings and doing all of these other creative things the last several months to fill the well back up in a different way. Your friend Tim said something to you and oh yeah, he it's did. had an effect on you. It has. I was telling you about it earlier and then I started crying and then I didn't realize <laughs> that I felt so emotional about it. Um, my friend Tim said that. He thought that it was interesting that for four years I was running this conference and that he felt like that somehow my own voice had gotten lost behind the space that I was curating. And I feel emotional about it again. I'm not going to cry right now again. Why? Why do you think it's why would why do you think that means so much to you? Dang, Gary. Because it's true. Is that what it's totally true? Hmm. It's totally true. Because I spent four years, geez, <laughs> I spent four years cultivating a space out of the overflow of my own heart. And it's not that I need the credit for it, but I need to not get lost behind it and then be expected to somehow reinvent myself for public consumption. Like, Myself was a loom the last four years. Mm-hmm. Like it was about hospitality. It was about caring about your neighbor. And it was about looking outside of your own city and seeing that there's a hurting world. And it was about loving people and and writing from a place where you're authentically you and stewarding a space well and and not putting out 
crap that makes people feel bad, that sometimes you just need to be quiet and writing in your own space until the Lord works something out. And if you're not helping someone grow or if you're not putting out someone something that's going to disciple a person in such a way, then I feel like you should keep your mouth shut. Um, and, and those were all things that like, I felt like I poured into a loom through the speakers that we brought in, through the nonprofits that we partnered with. I mean, all of you these chose them. Things. You chose them on purpose. Yes. And people didn't even realize, like, last year we had worked with the Museum of the Bible. I'd been personally trying to track down the Museum of the Bible for two years because I believed so much in what they were doing. And so people just think, like, oh, sponsors just come. Like, sometimes they do. But more often than not, like... I was reaching out because I was like, this matters in what we're doing. This is another component. And so people would come to a loom and say, something is different about this. Well, it's because it was curated. It was curated. And it was curated out of the overflow of what I felt like the Lord was asking me to do. And so people would forget that I personally had anything to say when a loom was what I was saying. So then when I've written a book... It comes out of this. Everyone's like, "Oh, she has something to say," and I'm like, "I do. I've been saying it for four years, <laughs> in a different way, in a different way." And so it feels like now it's really frustrating because I do have things to say, and I'm having to like almost earn the right to say them when I feel like I've spent four years paying to earn the right to say them, but no one sees that I maybe have. And that feels really frustrating. Wow. I wouldn't see it that way. How would well, you see I, it? Well, I would see it that way in that it would seem that way. And in the visible world, I could see how you could say that. But the Lord's used those last four years to do things inside you that he's going to use at whatever, in whatever ways, other ways there are after this. Oh, I believe that. And you, there was no way to get that for you true other than what you ended up going through yeah and so that the value of what you're going to be offering people is going to be a big part of this thing that you've gone through when you were curating others voices yeah and so on the surface and for right now it's like wow i'm kind of like starting over when i actually really built something and but i can't really stand on that platform if we call it a platform yeah. let's say i can't stand on that platform because i wasn't one of the voices on that platform i just brought the voices in in right. a sense you know even though you brought them all in on purpose and they were all your voice yeah that's just gonna be you know the cliche Lord, my cross it. to bear well, no <laughs> No, it's a gift. It's your gift. Yeah. And so you, you got something that no one could get what you've got from that without going through that. And hardly anyone else has gone through that. Yeah. That makes it even more valuable. That makes the thing inside you, whatever that is and however it comes out, right. way, way valuable. So Tim's right, but there's more beyond that. Yeah. Luckily, she has a two-book deal. <laughs> That's right. Luckily. And I don't want to have to learn that from going through it, Logan. Yeah. Thank you for going through it. Now teach me what you learned, because I don't want to have to do that. In the that. second book. In the second I, book. I will say this. When I took over Illum, uh, and Jeremy and I prayed about it, we specifically, specifically felt like it wasn't an audible voice from the heavens or whatever with rainbows and unicorns, but we really heard the Lord say, I need you to do this first. And so for me to put down a loom, it's really not felt 
so hard. If, in fact, everyone was like, how did you feel having October without a loom? And I was like, glorious. <laughs> like, it was a, it's my favorite month of the year. It's the first time in four years I, I got, got to have, have it. <laughs> I got to have a loom. I got to come to Nest Fest and make lace earrings. And I've been sewing pillows. Oh. I went to the mountains and drank it's coffee. Priceless, Logan. I mean, it was so priceless. great. But the thing is, is that when you... When you are obedient to the things God's asking you to do, too, and when he tells you to put it down, it's not like it creates this cavernous hole. Now, do I miss cultivating a space where people that I really love can come? Totally. But for me, a loom felt in some ways like a wedding because you invite all of these people that you love and that you care about and who are saying things, but like the bride never gets to sit with any of the guests mm-hmm. for more than like two seconds. And so it felt that way to me year after year. I didn't get to enjoy it. And I remember when I said that we weren't going to do it again last year, someone was like, well, just because all of you are tired doesn't mean that it doesn't do something good for the rest of us. And I thought, have at it, sister. Right, go for it. Go for it. Wow. <laughs> and so, but it really, I mean, And I don't know if we'll do it again. We may, we may not. I don't know. I don't feel the need to figure it out. And that's sort of Mm, glorious also. It is glorious. (laughs) It's really glorious. And so, you know, I recognize that there are, I could not, first of all, I wouldn't have even written a book if I hadn't run a loom. I'm I'm not going to be naive enough to say that like, oh, I wouldn't have known anything. I mean, I knew, I know tons of publishers now. I know other authors and speakers now. Um, there are things that I get about the world that I'm like, I, I really could probably just do consulting for other conferences about this is ways that you need to help people. This is what you should do for speakers. Don't ask speakers to do this. It makes them crazy. Like, And now that I'm on the other side of it, too, it's just really interesting. I, I really have some very valuable perspective that I'm super grateful for. And I know I couldn't have done any of these things without doing that. And I loved it. I mean, I loved doing it. But gosh, there's a time for everything, right? Like everything under heaven. And so if a time is done, it doesn't mean that we need to spend the rest of our time like lamenting the time that was. Those people who uh, went to Illum and who were regulars or who loved it, large group of women, what do you wish for them now? Oh, um, I really hope that they keep looking towards what God would have them do, for one. I know that's broad, Gary. But I also, one thing that I saw in a loom that frustrated me, and I know Michael and I have talked about it before, is that I saw people trying to define the value of their contribution to the world by the platform or the space that they're able to take up in some sort of like arbitrary interwebs. And and I almost stopped doing a loom just for that reason, because I didn't want to be a part of cultivating a space of false hope or false value, if that makes sense. I want for people to realize that if you're doing the thing that God is asking you to do, even if it shifts directions, and even if it looks different from when you thought, and actually probably especially if, that's a good thing for you to be pursuing what God has you do. But just because you don't end up on the other side of a road that you started out pursuing doesn't mean that you're a failure. Or for hope writers, like maybe you feel like that God's moving you towards writing a book. And so you start moving that direction. Well, just if you shift directions midway, or if you come to a certain point and then the Lord points you elsewhere, I think sometimes he he maybe even holds something in front of us because he wants us to start walking in a certain way. I totally agree. And 
but then we get totally freaked out if the course changes and we keep trying to like redirect back to the initial thing that we started off doing. And I think we absolutely 100% miss the blessings of where God wants to take us. And he was doing that to get us going in a certain direction. And, and he says, did I say you were going there? I said, head that way. And so for me, Illum was totally heading, heading one way, but I don't think Illum was like the be all end all. I don't even know if writing a book is the be all end all or writing two books. I really don't know. I just know that this is the place that he's asked me to go for right now. And so when it course changes, like, and I'm still pursuing the Lord, and I know that I'm following the Lord, then that's the place that I'm supposed to go. I was reading in Exodus 13, and it's talking about when the Lord is leading the Israelites out of Egypt. And it says that when he's taking them, the way that he took them by the way of the Red Sea was the long way. And the reason he took them the long way was because the short way would go through the Philistine camp. Um, And that he knew if he took them by the Philistine camp, that the people would freak out and that they would turn back and that they would think that Egypt was even better, even though all they'd wanted to do for eternity was be leaving Egypt. So, he took them this long way. And I think about, they were following the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And so there was never any question of if they were going the right direction, because they could see very plainly all day and all night long that they were going the right direction. But I wonder how they must have felt when that pillar of cloud led them to the Red Sea. And these are people who've spent their lives in a desert and probably aren't like phenomenal swimmers. And they come to the edge of the Red Sea and they're supposed to be escaping and they're standing there and they're like, but we totally followed you. And then they're just standing there. And I just think, how often do we think that? Like we've been following, 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 and we end up somewhere that we did not think that we would be. And that doesn't make sense to us how we get to the other side or how we get across. And so sometimes I think we decide like, turn back, turn back, rather than standing there on the precipice of like one of the greatest miracles in history. And so like, I just think, If you're following the cloud, be willing to end up at the edge of a sea that doesn't make sense to you and be willing to cross it into a place that you hadn't thought you were going. Otherwise, you miss out completely. You're a hope rider. (laughs) In Hope Riders, she goes by Logan Lane. You can catch up with Logan in Hope Riders by joining right now for just $1 for a week at hopewriters.com slash trial. It's a whole community of writers on the same journey you are. Writers who get it, who've been there, and who can help you. And some who are there now and need your help. Go inside Hope Writers right now for $1 for a week at hopewriters.com slash trial. And you get the Hope Writer Facebook group, a super community where you ask questions, make friends, get encouragement to grow your confidence and ditch anxiety. Go inside Hope Writers now for a week for $1. Just go to hopewriters.com slash trial. Well, this is the final episode of season two of the Hope Rider podcast. I hope as you reflect on this past year, you sense a spirit of calm appreciation and satisfaction. And I hope the words in your heart and that you've written have been tinted with supernatural grace and love. And I hope this new year, we all join together to cooperate with Jesus to spread that hope that he's always giving us. Look for a new season of the Hope Rider podcast in early 2017. And some final words of hope from writer Barbara Kingsolver. Write with no one looking over your shoulder. Don't try to figure out what other people want to hear from you. Figure out what you have to say. Thanks for listening. 